BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good day, good friends of ours, and a big welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. I hope you're managing to stay cool in the middle of these record high temperatures across much of the country. Meanwhile, things have also been heating up on the foreign policy front. Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia plods along, not as fast as we hoped it might go. But they do have new support from NATO, now in a war that President Biden says Putin can never win. The Biden administration is also staging a full-scale diplomatic offensive with China. North Korea has launched yet another ballistic missile. And bigger and bigger protests rock Israel every day over Netanyahu's plan to weaken the Israeli Supreme Court. It's a good time to take a look at all of today's global hotspots with our own foreign policy guru, Joe Cirincione, former head of the Plowshares Fund, national security analyst, and member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Joe Cirincione, thank you so much for joining us and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, Joe is uh, on the diplomatic front. A big week last week. President Biden went off with a uh, to Europe with a mission at the NATO summit to shore up support for Ukraine and to make sure that uh, NATO was uh, remains united and strong. Uh, how did he do? How did you rate his trip? Missions accomplished. I think he did both of those uh, very well. Uh, he didn't go as far on Ukraine as some of us would have liked. And there were some tense moments between him and Ukrainian President Zelensky. But overall, he, he advanced U.S. interests and advanced Ukrainian interests. You know, I, I feel like Joe Biden is kind of the stealth president. He continues to make gains to make these kinds of advances, both on domestic policy and internationally, that frankly, he doesn't get the, the credit for. And this NATO summit was was one of them. You know, he, he, I think Biden still sees himself in the repair phase of his presidency of correcting the damage done by Donald Trump in his four years of destruction and tearing down of U.S. global leadership role. And we sometimes take it for granted that U.S. leads NATO. But what that means is it requires scores of officials working as hard as they can to, to knit together this alliance of 30, now 30 plus members and you could see that in how Biden managed that NATO summit, putting together the, the, the more forward-leaning positions of, say, Poland and the Baltic states who want to be stronger in support of Ukraine, and the more reluctant countries like Germany, for example, who are hesitant about uh, provoking Vladimir Putin by being too forward-leaning on Ukraine. Biden did a nice balancing act and emerged with a stronger uh, NATO, uh, one, by the way, that is now going to include Sweden after mm -hmm. the U.S. convinced Turkey to stop their objections and overall strengthening the role of the United States and the West in, in global affairs. So, yes, missions accomplished. So it was uh, not only Sweden, but Finland coming in as well. Two new members to NATO, right? Oh, uh, that's right. So Finland was officially... Uh, uh, 
affiliated with NATO. They raised the Finnish flag along that of the 30 other nations, Finland now being the 31st member of NATO. And Biden got Turkey's uh, leader Erdogan to drop his objections to Sweden joining. So Sweden is now on track and will probably be formally uh, become a member of NATO either by the next meeting next year or they could they could accelerate it and move it ahead. So Sweden's now on track to, to become the 32nd member of NATO. So you mentioned, Joe, there was some tension, of course, at the NATO summit, understandably. But did the president, did President Biden make the right decision uh, in convincing NATO not to accept Ukraine as a new member now, but to promise Ukraine they would be a member as soon as the war was over? Well, yes, because you can't have Ukraine join while there's an active war going on. There Why is, not? Why not? Well, because that would immediately make it put into effect the NATO security commitments to defend uh, the, the territory of any neighbor that it, any member that's attacked. And that would mean you'd have a NATO war with Russia, something that no one in NATO wants, most importantly, uh, President Biden. So, and this is a longstanding policy. NATO does not accept members that have an ongoing territorial dispute in their country. So that's understood. What Ukraine wanted, supported by Poland and, and the, the Baltic states, was a more assertive invitation, an actual uh, a, a statement that went beyond previous commitments that said not only would Ukraine eventually become a member, but Ukraine will become a member, for example, next year at our next meeting and Got lay it. out clear guidelines for what it should be. Instead, you basically got an, a, a, a statement of intent, of the intention to, to bring NATO, to, uh, to bring Ukraine into NATO once conditions were right. That, that, uh, that annoyed U the Ukrainian leadership, and he came to the summit with some harsh words for NATO leaders, words he later softened uh, during the course of the meetings. Right. So um, looking at NATO, with 31st member now, 32nd coming soon, 33rd coming as soon as the war is over. <clears throat> Vladimir Putin has had just the opposite effect of what he intended when he started this war, correct? That's absolutely right. He had hoped that uh, his interpretation was that the West was in decline, that the U.S. leadership in the world was in decline, that NATO was fractured, and that a good hard punch in the nose, his invasion of Ukraine, would fracture yeah. the alliance. Exactly the opposite has happened. NATO is more united, larger, stronger <laughs> than perhaps it's ever been in its uh, existence. And will get stronger still. Right. Uh, absolutely. Sweden and Finland bring formidable uh, defense resources to the NATO alliance. Ukraine is the largest country in Europe, save for Russia, and it might have the best military in Europe now. So once Ukraine joins, um, Vladimir Putin and you know Russia overall are really going to be boxed in. You and I have talked uh, from the very beginning of the Ukraine war several times about how things are going. Uh, your current assessment, I'd be interested in how things are going today, particularly is the counteroffensive uh, coming through as everybody was hoping it would. Yeah, I, I think there's two areas to watch right now in the Ukraine conflict. And one is the counteroffensive, of what's going on on that 600 mile front line with between Ukrainian and Russian forces. And the other is what's happening in Russia itself, particularly the results of the Prigozhin re revolt. The counteroffensive is proceeding slowly. 
There's no question about it that Ukraine is encountering difficulties. They spent weeks probing and trying to soften up the Russian lines. But five weeks ago, when they started to make some armored thrusts into those lines, they got decimated by the minefields that Russia has laid along most of those front lines, layers and layers of of landmines, anti-personnel mines, all kinds of booby traps. And now you're seeing stories that heartbreaking stories of Russian, of uh, Ukrainian infantrymen being, have been blown up by stepping on a landmine, their colleagues coming to rescue them and them being blown up, armored personnel vehicles coming in to try to rescue and them being blown up. So the Ukrainians have really uh, stepped back and are reassessing. And what they're doing right now is trying a different technique and they are launching attacks to try to soften up the Russian artillery support mm-hmm. that's coming in, the logistical nodes, the supply nodes, and they seem to be making advances. So Ukrainian officials say, don't look at how many square kilometers we're advancing. For example, they last week they recaptured about 100 square kilometers, not very much at all compared to what we thought would happen. But look at how many uh, Russian assets we're depleting. Um, the, but Ukrainians still remain confident that they'll be able to achieve a breakthrough uh, later this summer, but they acknowledge it's going to take long Longer than they would like, uh, mm-hmm. and longer than they thought it was going to it was going to take when they started the offensive. Right. Uh, so the other front, the second front, you mentioned. Well, this is what's so interesting. You're seeing almost every day a story of some Russian general being removed from his post, or in some cases killed. One of the things the Ukrainians are doing is targeting individual Russian generals. They just uh, killed one last week while out jogging, apparently by tracking his cell phone and sending a drone in to kill him. Um, but you're seeing this 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 um, eruption of political dissent among the military with Putin's rules, uh, with his, uh, his, his conduct of the war. And the Institute for the Study of War reports just yesterday that this insubordination seems to be spreading to some of their soldiers. So you're hmm. seeing this rising discontent among the military triggered by Prigozhin's revolt a couple of weeks ago, this odd episode we've spent time discussing, but there seems to be much more discontent in the Russian military than previously thought. So many, many people are watching that as well. And it may be that there could be a significant weakening behind the front lines in Russia, not just on the because of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. President Biden said last week that this, I think it was in Vilnius, Lithuania, that this is a war that Putin can never win. I think that is the general consensus. That's exactly right. His, he, his ability to advance Russian forces has uh, been shown to be um, uh, uh, impossible. He, he tried the counteroffensive this winter. He didn't make any gains at all. Um, it looks like you know the, it's just a matter of time before Ukraine, I think, does achieve a breakthrough here. Putin's hope what, I, what everybody believes is Putin's strategy is that he's waiting not for a development on the military front, but on the political front. He's looking to elections in 2024 to change the leadership of some of the frontline countries, particularly the United States, in the mm. hope that that can deliver a victory that he can't win militarily. Hmm. So on the military front, uh, one other item of tension, of course, around the NATO summit was whether or not to send these so-called cluster bombs to Ukraine, which they've wanted for a long time. We have resisted sending for a long time. President Biden, Biden finally made the decision to send them. Was it the right decision? I don't think so. I understand mm-hmm. why they did it. 
And, and, and their explanation is very simple. Ukraine is running out of artillery shells. The U.S. does not have the artillery shells that we need to resupply them. These cluster bombs are artillery shells. And so that's what they decided to give them. Ukraine asked for this. It's, it's going to be deploying these, these cluster bombs on its own territory, and it's prepared to pay the cost of cleaning up. The duds, there's a dud rate of somewhere between 2 and 10% for these cluster munitions, which is why they've been considered inhumane weapons that over 120 countries have banned, including, by the way, the United Kingdom, France, and Germany, who objected to the Biden decision as well. But Biden said this was sort of a, a Sophie's choice, that we, we either give them these inhumane weapons and, and risk future civilian deaths, or we don't give them the weapons and we get civilian deaths now because Ukraine is unable to continue its defense of its territory. That's why they made the decision. I don't think they should have done it. I think they sh- this is th- 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 that we had ample warning that this artillery shortage was present, that we should have ramped up our efforts months ago, that we should be giving Ukraine some of the weapons, other weapons they want, like long-range artillery, long-range rockets, the HIMAR a rocket system. We should have given them agreement to get F-16s and been training their, their pilots mm-hmm. in F-16s mm-hmm. months ago. So this is one area where I think the Biden administration has been too cautious and now it found itself in this difficult and I think un- un- unfortunate choice. Uh, and final question on the U- Ukraine front. While the president was successful in shoring up support and keeping the NATO countries together, there are more and more voices in the Republican Party here at home, uh, including the Speaker of the House, who are questioning our support uh, for Ukraine. Um, at the Evangelical Conference last weekend in Iowa, Uh, That was the number one issue. Tucker Carlson, the host, made it the number one issue, asking every candidate basically to take the pledge in opposition to the United States support for uh, for Ukraine. How do you read that, uh, Joe? Mm. Could that derail the whole thing? It could. There were 70 votes on an amendment last week in the House of Representatives to the Defense Authorization Bill. 70 Republicans voted to cut off all aid to Ukraine. So this is this is real. Right. So that's about a what about a third of the caucus. Um, And I I think there was an active pro Putin wing in the Republican Party, just as there was in the 1930s, a pro Nazi wing among conservative elements in the United States. People tend to forget this, that there were people who thought that Hitler was on was was the one to back in the conflict in Europe, not our allies, Great Britain or France. Similarly, you see that here and you can see it in the general authoritarian inclination of the Republican Party, and here it's being expressed in in this wartime situation. I think the center will hold right now. I I think Biden has got the majority position. He certainly has the majority position in, in among our allies who are strongly in back. And you look to Europe and even the conservative parties in Europe, for example, in Italy or in France, um, back, uh, Ukraine against Putin. So this is a minority voice, but, you know, should Trump win election? Well, this is going to become the majority position and Putin will will be the beneficiary of that. Trump promises he could end the war in 24 hours. The only way you can do that is by pulling the plug on Ukraine and backing Putin's position. And that could happen. That could happen. We have to be wary of this. 
Hard to believe that the party of Ronald Reagan would become the party of Vladimir Putin, but um, <laughs> uh, as you say, we're seeing it happen with uh, a good good chunk of Republicans, particularly Republicans in the House. Well, Joe, as important as Ukraine is, it is not the only place where the United States faces some foreign policy challenges. Uh, we're taking a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod, and when we come back, Joe, let's talk about uh, the rest of the world and what's going on on the foreign policy front. And today's podcast with Joe Cirnicioni brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the great Teamsters Union, the men and women of the Teamsters Union. It's America's largest and most diverse labor union. And now, of course, uh, organizing and contemplating and ready for a big strike uh, with UPS drivers against the leadership of UPS. Uh, President Sean O'Brien asking the White House to stay out of it, not to intervene. So as a strong labor supporter myself, uh, we want to express our solidarity today with the Teamsters Union, with our good brothers and sisters at UPS, uh, and check out their website at teamster.org if you want to know about more about all the issues behind this possible strike coming up before the end of the month. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, today's guest, uh, our own foreign policy guru, we call him, Joe Cirincioni, former head of the Plowshares Fund, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, and of course, a national security analyst you see often on CNN and MSNBC. Uh, Joe, let's talk about China, things, tense relations in China. Uh, and yet the Biden administration, President Biden, has sent uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken over there. Uh, Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen, a sort of a full-scale diplomatic offensive. Is this the right approach? Yes, it is. And he, they're about to be joined by um, uh, climate envoy John Kerry, right. who's going to go into China this, this week as well. This is something of a diplomatic surge we're seeing in the Biden administration. You see it really across the board, but it's particularly notable in China. They are, they are really seeking to um, balance their tough rhetoric on China that was apparent in the first year of the administration with now a diplomatic offensive that seeks to, to manage the competition between mm -hmm. the United States and China and make sure this doesn't become a, a conflict. And it seems to be showing results. The Chinese rhetoric has softened. There are still significant, serious issues that divide us. Taiwan is one of them. Uh, U.S. tariffs on China's goods are another. 
So if we're on the right track on China, Joe, we, um, we haven't talked for a while about North Korea. And a year or so ago, we were talking about North Korea every time, every time we got together. Uh, but yet, uh, mm. North Korea hasn't gone to sleep. They, they shot off another ICBM uh, recently. Um, what is the status on possible talks with North Korea? Is this a, still a looming threat? How do you read it? It is absolutely a looming threat. They just did their second test of their solid fuel mobile ICBM. This is a weapon that not many people in the world have. It's quite advanced, meaning it's on a, a mobile launcher. And they, they rolled it up, uh, uh, erected it, and, and launched it. And this is a weapon that can hit the United States. It's called the Wasong-18. It's quite a capable solid fuel missile, meaning that it doesn't need a silo to launch. They can launch it uh, within Minutes rather than having to fuel it within hours. So this is a significant advance in their capability. The United States just over the weekend, Jake Sullivan said on, uh, on network news that the United States is ready to engage in talks with North Korea without any preconditions. So not mm-hmm. ask, stop mm-hmm. any to, to engage in those talks. I think North Korea wants something more than just that kind of offer. They're looking for some genuine um uh, concessions that the United States might might make, and they think that they are holding the cards. I, I'm afraid that the Biden administration is repeating the failed policy of the Obama administration, which thought who thought they could just outweigh North Korea, that they didn't want to give in to this kind of nuclear blackmail. You could understand that position, but when you have years of it not working and the North Korean program continue to advance, I think it's time for them to reconsider and consider doing what many analysts have suggested, negotiating the end of the Korean War with North Korea, that is a peace treaty with North Korea, as a way of of slowing their nuclear program and creating the conditions where you could actually have negotiations for the nuclear program rather than seeing a peace treaty as the reward for any concessions they would make in the nuclear program. But things continue to be tense. Yeah. Uh, now, I know this is of particular interest to you and you've written about it. Um, you're an expert on it. So let me ask you, we talk about North Korea's nuclear program. What is the status of our own nuclear weapons program? Well, the Congressional Budget Office just came out with a report this week that indicated that our spending on our nuclear weapons program is out of control, that the cost of the of U.S. nuclear weapons had risen by $120 billion since Whoa. their last report uh, two years ago. We're on track to spend $75 billion a year on nuclear weapons every year for the next 10 years. That is an enormous amount of money to be spending on weapons that we we don't need, certainly not in the numbers that we have them, at a time when we clearly have conventional uh, shortfalls, for example, our inability to produce enough artillery to provide y- Ukraine with the defense it, it needs. We are proceeding uh, full speed on the nuclear plans that Donald Trump put in place. Joe Biden has not changed uh, uh, one bit of, of Trump's plan. So we're building a new bomber. We're building a new submarine. We're building a new uh, land-based uh, missile. We're building new warheads. The fear of many of us have that if we keep up this uh, this pace, you know, we're going to create the conflict we seek to avoid. We're going to, we, we are creating the arms race as China matches our capability, as Russia continues to, to increase its um nuclear rhetoric and and nuclear programs. In fact, every 
one of the nine nuclear weapon states in the world is building new weapons at this point. Mm. You'd have to say we're in a, a global arms race and the entire nonproliferation regime, the, the regime we created to stop other countries from creating these weapons, is hanging in the balance. Right. Uh, and you have been very uh, straightforward and very strong with that message, as has former Defense Secretary William Perry and uh, mm -hmm. my former boss, California Governor Jerry Brown. A foreign policy hotspot of a different nature entirely. Uh, let's talk about Israel, where protests mounting every day, uh, coming close to shutting that country down in opposition uh, to what the Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu wants to do in terms of weakening the Supreme Court. Um, you, you know, how does this how does this play out? Do you think, and how serious is it? Israel is descending into chaos. I was struck by my Senator Chris Van Hollen's comments uh, just this weekend. He returned from a trip to Israel and he said Bibi Netanyahu does not have both hands on the steering wheel. Whoa. This, we are heading for a, a, a serious conflict at the end of this month as Bibi Netanyahu tries to push through his judicial coup meaning he's passing legislation that would basically nullify the ability of the Israeli courts to contradict any decision made by the government. You know, people don't quite understand that, you know, in our system of checks and balances, we have an independent but equal branch of government in the Congress, in the executive branch, in the judiciary. In Israel, because it's a parliamentary system, the, the executive branch and the parliamentary systems are essentially merged, and the only check is the courts. And what Netanyahu is trying to do now is pass a bill by the end of this year that would say the courts cannot overrule any of my decisions, anything that's passed by the Knesset or by me. In, it, the consequence of that are enormous, and, and it would basically end Israeli democracy and turn it into a, 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 on the road to a dictatorship. And you're seeing massive protests in Israel over this. Some people are calling for a general strike if this bill passes. More importantly, you're seeing military protest this. You have hundreds of reservists who are saying they won't serve in the military. They won't report for duty if this bill is passed. And this includes commanders of, of, of some tough frontline commando units who are saying, we, this is not what we signed up for. This is not the Israel we pledged to defend. So this is quite a crisis, and it comes as the Israeli president, Herzog, is visiting the United States this week and is expected to make an address, a joint address to the uh, United States Congress. And, and it certainly doesn't it undermine uh, the main argument for years, decades, that we so strongly support Israel because it's the only democracy in the Middle East. Right. That is exactly right. How often have you heard the phrase shared values? Well, we don't share these values. Bibi Netanyahu does not share the value of democracy uh, that, that we hold so dear in this country. And this is causing you, you heard you saw Thomas Friedman write a column last week saying that it's time for a reassessment of the U.S. Israeli a relationship. Mm. For somebody like Friedman to say that, that is just earth-shaking. Now, the Biden administration said, no, 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 we're not doing any reassessment. But I got to believe that privately that is exactly what they're doing, because Israel is becoming increasingly a liability for the United States, not an asset. Wow. Uh, and finally, Joe, I have to ask you, so here we are, month of July, in the summer, a big blockbuster movie scheduled to come out uh, in just a week or so, July 21 about the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer. 
Uh, very, very important in the nuclear world. Maybe, but most people probably never heard of him. Uh, quickly or briefly, who is he and why is it important? Robert Oppenheimer was considered the most brilliant physicist of his generation, and that's saying something because there was quite a crop of physicists in the 30s and 40s. He became the scientific head of the Manhattan Project, the project to build the U.S. nuclear bomb, and he succeeded brilliantly in Los Alamos, creating the, the material for the bomb and the design for the bomb and the understanding the science behind how to turn this idea that you could fission an atom into a practical weapon. It was intended to deter the, the Nazis, to deter Adolf Hitler from using a bomb. The initial impetus was that Hitler was advancing on this project and we had to create a counter to deter him from using it. But even after Hitler was defeated, the project went on and this caused Oppenheimer tremendous anxiety about whether it was right to continue the project to produce this bomb. And once it was exploded and used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, he and other scientists regretted deeply or what they had done. And, and in this movie, you'll see Oppenheimer wrestling with this, both the challenges of creating the bomb and the stresses and strain of, of the Manhattan Project itself, but then the moral dilemma of what does it mean for the world that I've now created a weapon that can destroy that which I'm trying to defend. So, in fact, uh, here is uh, just a little clip from the trailer for the Oppenheimer movie, uh, which reflects that very point you're making, uh, this angst about what did I do? Here, here's, a, here's a clip from the movie. This is a national emergency. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. World War II would be over. Our boys would come home. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. Yeah, there you go. Joe, what do you want people to to carry away from this movie? What do you want people to, to you know, what's the message of this movie you'd like people to walk home with? That the main problem is not the people that have nuclear weapons, it's nuclear weapons itself. It's not a question of good guys having them and stopping bad guys from getting them. It's the existence of these weapons themselves. And you see this at the very beginning. The scientists understood what it meant that they had created this weapon. And most of them wanted some kind of international system of control over this weapon. We do not have that. And as such, it represents one of the, the great existential threats to human civilization. We are never going to be safe as long as nuclear weapons exist. That's the central message of this film. July 21. We will watch it with your words, your your warnings in mind, Joe Sioni. Well, a good look at all the uh, hot spots of the world, Joe. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope you're having a great summer. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Joe Sioni. A big thanks to Joe and a thanks to all of you for listening. We'll keep our eye on events of the week in Washington and around the country, as always, and bring you uh, a good assessment of what happened this week with our Reporters Roundtable on Friday. Three top political reporters looking at the big news of the week here on the Bill Press Pod. That's next. Have a great week. Come back and see us on Friday for the Reporters Roundtable and our next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>